Last week, we began a study of the Apostles' Creed, a statement of belief that dates back to, in its current form, back to the 4th century. Its origin actually goes back to the early or mid-2nd century. But this creed takes us into the domain of doctrine, primarily teaching about God. Now, for many in the church today, unfortunately, any mention of doctrine produces a sigh. Do we have to? (laughs) Or the rolling of one's eyes, you know, what could this possibly have to do with me? I suppose some people place doctrine in the same category with some of these little-known facts. Um, Did you know there are 293 ways to make change for a dollar? If you're wondering what to do for the afternoon, I encourage you. Did you know that the longest one-syllable word in the English language is screeched? Did you know that no word in the English language rhymes with month, orange, silver, and purple? There there are only four words in the English language which end in D-O-U-S. Tremendous, horrendous, stupendous, and hazardous. Did you know that a cat has 32 muscles in each ear? Did you know a goldfish has a memory span of three seconds? Yes. Many in the Christian church today, even as clergy and scholars, have abandoned the importance of biblical doctrine, biblical truth. For example, one former denominational leader wrote in one of his newsletters this, can we any longer claim a unique universal ultimacy for our Christ? What is the meaning of that enterprise we call evangelism that seems to assume the narrow and traditional claims for Christianity that we've made through the ages? The challenge before Christians today is to find new answers and more inclusive ways to respond to God's truth in our time. When the Reverend Samuel Lloyd was installed as the ninth dean at the Washington National Cathedral in 2005, there were readings not only from the Bible, but also from the Quran. Lloyd said, and I'm quoting, there is a disturbing absence of thoughtful religious reflection in our public conversation in our country. In print and on television, you can readily hear the views of a narrow and divisive religious fundamentalism. Now, here's his solution. Again, I quote, I believe this cathedral is called to be a major voice of a faith that is firm at the center and soft at the edges. Now, he doesn't really define the center or the edges, so we'll have to just let that lie. However, he adds, a faith that embraces ambiguity, that honors other faiths, a faith that insists that Christ's values be embodied in the social order. Maybe instead of soft edges, we have in reality mushy edges. Does it really matter what you believe? It was a warm, hazy afternoon off the coast of Japan, May 6, 1985. 
Two U.S. Marine Corps Sea Stallion helicopters were on a shuttle hop over the East China Sea. Suddenly, one of them piloted by 27-year-old Captain James Reese, with 16 other men aboard, experienced a broken oil pump. This cut off lubrication to the helicopter's gearbox, which controls the rotors. Captain Reese radioed the other helicopter that instead of ditching in cold water, he was going to follow procedure by the book and head for shore 15 miles away. Captain Reese was a good marine pilot. He'd virtually memorized the emergency procedures spelled out in the Bible of Marine Corps Aviation, the Naval Aviation Training and Operations Manual. The manual said the sea stallion would keep flying safely for at least 30 minutes, even with this transmission starved for oil. But the manual was wrong. Five minutes after the breakdown started, the oil-starved transmission of the mighty helicopter seized and ripped apart. The rotors, according to a later report, quote, stopped in mid-turn like a bicycle wheel with a stick jammed in the spokes. Without the rotors, the 12-ton machine fell out of the sky like a concrete block, smashing the water's surface with terrible force. It broke apart and sank in 15 seconds. Everyone aboard was killed. The headlines read, Marine flew by the book, but 17 died. The book was wrong. Captain Reese believed the book, but the book was wrong. I mean, did it really matter what he believed? This was the challenge that's facing the leaders in the church in the second century. Teachings contrary to that of the apostles were now beginning to be introduced within the church. So what was the Christian to believe? You know, the church had to define what it was to be Christian, what the Bible really taught about the triune God. And the result was a creed, a statement of faith. Now, the heresies that faced the, sh the church there in the early years are around in one fashion or another today. And we, like those Christians, must decide what do we believe. What is a Christian? What does that mean? And that's why we've chosen our speaking team here to decide to do this series on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, not because we're going to install the creed as our statement of faith in our church, not because we're going to begin to recite it on Sunday mornings like I did as a little kid growing up in my rural Lutheran church. Uh, but it is that we might acknowledge its value and the importance of it to the church down through the centuries that it might be instructive as to what we are to believe. Now, last week you were handed uh, half of an 8.5 by 11 sheet of paper that has the creed on it. And it's for you to have, uh, stick it in your Bible or something while we go through the series, and you can look at it from time to time. If you weren't here or didn't get one, they're out at the information booth, so as you leave this morning, feel free to pick one up take with you. But we're going to recite the creed together, and this time we've, we've put it up on the, on the screen so that we can follow along. So let's repeat the creed together, shall we? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven 
and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. That's the version that I learned growing up. That comes basically from the fourth century. Uh, how often have you wanted to use words like sitteth and thence? Uh, the word Catholic simply means universal. And so that's the creed. I grew up on probably most people that grew up in a church tradition in our country, at least in the last generation, learning this. Well, today we're going to take a look at the statement that opens the creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Let's take it apart. Let's separate it into its component parts and then spend a few minutes looking at each. The creed begins with an affirmation of faith or belief. It says, I believe. Now, belief or faith in the, in the scripture is both a noun and a verb. In the Greek language of the New Testament, the noun form of the word faith means belief, firm persuasion, assurance, firm conviction, and it is that there's a body of content that we believe in and is true or real whether or not you choose to believe it. The Bible is the record of God as he reveals himself to us. The New Testament writer Jude talks about this body of truth. He writes this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So belief has to do with a body of content in which we are persuaded that we are convinced. But faith is also a verb. The verb form means to believe, to give credit to, to entrust. And both of those words come from the same root word, which means to persuade, to convince, or to be persuaded, to be convinced. So to believe something is to be persuaded about or convinced about something, and namely here, this body of content, biblical truth. Paul uses this word when he wrote to the Philippians, and he said, and I am sure, there's our word, it means persuaded, convinced, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion the day of Christ Jesus. I believe, declared the early church leaders. Now, there's some things about which we're certain, we're assured, we're persuaded, we're convinced. These are things about which we've placed our trust into. I believe in God the Father Almighty. Now, perhaps a generation ago, if you talked to someone about God, there was a common understanding of what that meant. And so you could say to somebody, God loves you. There was really no need to define God. But that's not true today. The question is, which God? What God? Who's God? According to most pollsters today, between 80 and 90% of Americans say that they believe in God. Now, of course, that's a very misleading statistic because you haven't defined God. Our view of God is so critical. One of my favorite authors, A.W. Tozier, writes in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, the history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion. 
And man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the pretentious fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. So who is God according to the Bible? Well, he's identified and described by his name. We encounter God in the very opening statement of Scripture, in the beginning, God. His name here in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament is Elohim. It occurs 2,750 times in the Old Testament. Many scholars believe that it actually comes from a shorter word, El, E-L, which means mighty, strong, prominent. This word El is translated God 250 times, and it usually speaks about the power of God. For example, from Deuteronomy 10, Yahweh, your Elohim, is God of gods, Lord of lords, the El, who is great, mighty, and awesome. So Elohim, usually translated God in your Old Testament, expresses the general idea of greatness, of glory. It's the idea of creative and governing power. Uh, it's, it's omnipotence, it's sovereignty. What's interesting is that this name of God has the plural ending in the Hebrew language. It's usually described as the plurality of majesty. It also speaks of the unity of this one majestic God. Uh, it, it really allows for a plurality of persons within the Godhead. And so when we come to the New Testament, we see the concept of a triune God developed more fully. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Three distinct persons, but one essence. Now Yahweh, another name for God, is really his covenant name for God. Uh, he makes this covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is the name that's used most often in the Old Testament, 6,823 times. So Elohim is the general name for God associated with the creation and preservation of the world. Yahweh is his name as the God of revelation in the expression of himself in his moral and spiritual attributes. So he identifies himself to Moses in the burning bush, for example, as Yahweh. He instructs Moses to tell the people, Yahweh, the Lord, and in most of our Old Testaments, when you see Lord with a larger L, but all caps, Lord, that's Yahweh. Yahweh, the Lord, the Elohim of your fathers, the Elohim of Abraham, the Elohim of Isaac, the Elohim of Jacob has sent me to you. God further identifies himself to Moses when Moses asked what his name was. Do you remember? God says to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. And that translation of I am is the first person form of the Hebrew verb to be. The meaning of this is that God is the self-existent one. Ronald Allen states, he exists independent upon nothing or no one excepting his own will. This is what the early church leaders were affirming. A God who owes his existence to no one. 
He's the self-existent one, the all-powerful one, the one who reveals himself in creation and in his covenants that he makes with people. This is the God that's revealed to us in the Bible. So when we say, I believe in God, that's what we're talking about, the one who is self-revealed here. Now, the early church leaders affirmed the biblical identification of God as Father. Um, Elizabeth Ackermeyer makes several important points in an article in Christianity Today titled, Why God is Not Mother. She says the biblical scholars universally agree that the God of the Bible has no sexuality. She writes, sexuality is a structure of creation confined within the limits of creation, and the God of the Bible is consistently pictured as totally other than all creation. That's part of what the Bible means when it says that God is holy. The root word of holy means set apart or different. God is holy. He's different than all. The temple was holy. It was different than all the other buildings. Akamar goes on to note the Bible uses masculine language for God because that's the language with which God has revealed himself. The ultimate revelation we have of God as Father, though, comes in the New Testament. And here he's identified as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus constantly referred to God throughout his earthly ministry as his Father. Here's some examples from the Gospel of John. Chapter 5, my Father is working until now, and I'm working. John 5, 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive him. John 14, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. But we could go on and on in the Gospels, Jesus identifying God as his Father. Eight times in the epistles, God is referred to as the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this connection is so relevant and so important within the creed. God the Father, God the Son. This identity tells us about the very nature of God. Alvin Kimel writes, God is not just like a father, he is the father. Jesus is not just like a son, he is the son. The divine fatherhood and sonship are absolute, transcendent, and correlative. The relationship between Christ Jesus and his father lived out in the conditions of first century Palestine and eternally established in the resurrection and ascension of our Lord belongs to the inner life of God. It constitutes the identity of the almighty creator. Father is not a metaphor imported by humanity onto the screen of eternity. It is a name and filial term of address revealed by God himself in the person of his son. The concept of fatherhood becomes a very special thing when we think of the relationship into which God calls us by his grace. John the Apostle writes, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In his first epistle, John writes, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Paul speaks of the intimacy of this relationship with God as Father in Romans chapter 8, where he says, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. I believe in God the Father. 
the, the writers of the creed add one more thing to their statement here. Believe, I believe in God the Father Almighty. We see in scriptures that one of the names for God is a compound name building off of El. This one is El Shaddai, God Almighty. This is the God who is sovereign over all. This is the God who does all things by his might, by his sovereign power and his sovereign choice. Isn't it sort of silly that we sometimes act as if we're sovereign? One of my favorites always was Calvin and Hobbes. This is one of my favorites, if you can see it, where Calvin is standing there with his father. So you want some water, huh? Well, I've got a big can of it here. It's up to me to decide if you get water or not. I control your fate. Your very lives are in my hands. Without me, you're as good as dead. Without me, you don't. I believe in God the Father Almighty. And then they added this affirmation that God is the source of all that is. He is the maker of heaven and earth. The scriptures declare that it is God who is creator of all, including us. The writer of Psalm 100 put it this way, Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We tend to get that a little mixed up, don't we? This is the declaration of the book of beginnings. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Nathan Stone writes, it is the Elohim who by his mighty power creates the vast universe, who says and it is done, who brings into being what was not, by whose word, by word, whose word the worlds were framed so that things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. The Apostle Paul made a very similar statement. It's a profound statement in 1 Corinthians 8, 6. Many biblical scholars today believe that this was a creedal statement from the apostles. Yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So we stand in the line of believers throughout all of the centuries declaring that God is the creator God. These early Christians were responding to one of the tenets of Gnosticism. Remember, we'll be thinking about Gnosticism throughout our study here. It, it taught a form of dualism. Matter was evil, spirit was good. Therefore, God could not have anything to do with material things, with the world. And so when he set out to create the world, since he couldn't have anything to do with material things or matter, he sent us out a series of emanations, lesser gods. And as they got finally far enough away, there was a lesser god who could then create and have something to do with the material world. This was the god to them of the Old Testament, not the true god. But the creed affirms the teaching of the Bible that God did indeed create the earth and all that is. He is the maker of heaven and earth. <sighs> Deep breath. What are some of the implications of this affirmation by these early church leaders? First is this, God is the source of all things. Paul gave a defense of the gospel in the great city of Athens. He said this, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God is a creative person. He's a, he's a powerful person. He is a purposeful person. And therefore, God as creator understands how things work best. Since he created with purpose, our lives have purpose and meaning and significance. We find our meaning in him. And so we find our purpose when our lives are lived according to his purpose. We find meaning when we understand that God created us to have a relationship with him. When we live for his glory, not for ours. When we discover that our deepest needs are met in him and not everything else. The creed begins at the beginning. The place of origin as far as our knowledge and understanding goes. It begins here out of necessity. If we're to make sense of life, we have to have a framework of life, a framework of understanding. So this is the place we begin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I want to I close by reading a little caution. It comes from the German theologian Helmut Tillichy, and he was, he was writing after World War II, um, amazing some of his insights, but but, but listen to what he says in his book, I Believe, I Believe. Many people block up the entrance to this adventure of faith by thinking that they must feel something religious, that they must sense a tingling of their nerves, a religious thrill when the experience of faith comes over them. But the Bible's prescriptions for faith will cure anyone of this delusion the remarkable thing is that the Bible does not concern itself with the subjective experience of faith, with that religious feeling. This comes as a surprise to people of today who are so keenly interested in psychology. Furthermore, in the Apostles' Creed, there's no mention of feeling and experience whatsoever. It is composed of dry facts, a sober catalog of events extending from the Nativity to the Ascension. The religious man and who does not fall into that category, hankers after the thrill of religious experience and instead is put off with dogmas. But it is the dogmas, the doctrine, the truth that forms the foundation. So thank God for feelings, for religious experiences, but they always have to conform to the truth that we know is here. This is where we begin. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. Would you pray with me? God, we pause today in our busy lives, as we have already in our songs this morning and sharing together in fellowship, the truth that you are our God, that you are our Father if we've put our trust in you for salvation, that you are the creator of heaven and earth, and we worship you because you are awesome and sovereign and great. But God, you are also good. And I know there are people even in our church family that are going through difficult times, but would you 
Help them to grasp the truth that you are great and you are good. That there's nothing that you allow into their lives, but that you will not use it for their ultimate good and your ultimate glory. And so as we make our way through this creed, might we affirm with those early church leaders of what we believe and who we believe. And might the truths of that creed founded upon your holy scriptures be what found, forms a foundation for us to deal with life as we face it. So thank you for your word. Thank you for those that have gone before us who've encapsulated the teaching of the apostles into something like the Apostles' Creed. In Christ's name I pray, amen.